Well, it's a great Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, I'm so happy because I am one of these guys who love the holiday season, Christmas upon us, and of course, one of my family traditions, taking the wife, the kids, grandma, everybody I can to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and we're back for 2022. Al Petrelli, the man, is here, and it's great to see you, buddy. Good back at you, my brother. I hope you're well. The family's well. Everybody's good at home. We're okay. We're doing great, man. And one thing we're very excited about is uh, we get to see you in a brand new venue in Austin this year. Of course, you you performed several years at the Irwin Center, uh, but this year, brand new venue called the Moody Center. Um, everybody is playing there, and I can't wait to see what the production is going to be like for Trans-Siberian. Have you even heard about this venue yet? You know, I have. There's been talk about it. Uh, listen, like you said, we've been playing the Frank Irwin Center. Jack Orban was bringing us down there with Stone City Attractions for decades, you know, and I just fell in love with Austin, the people of Austin. The shopping in Austin? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And of course, I've been to a few shows with Jack and you down at uh, at San Antonio, too. So it's we, we become a bi-city there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, straight up. True. Well, listen, I just can't wait to get back down that way, you know, to bring another show out, a different show, uh, you know, bigger production, new songs. I mean, every, the trajectory from 1999 until 2022 has been just on an upward angle, um, musically, emotionally, visually, sonically. Uh, so I can't, I, I have not seen the production yet. I won't get mm-hmm. to see it until I get to Omaha in about three weeks. Right. Yeah, that's what we do our full blown production rehearsals. I can't wait to see it. Well, the one thing that I will say is everyone seems to be playing catch up from all the time they couldn't tour during COVID, uh, you know, and just literally in the past week or so, there's been four or five major tours, you know, just in Austin alone with these these big, uh, you know, band names. Um I'm really happy to see, though, with all this, you know, competition, if you will, because it is uh, where people are spending their money, that you guys always manage to keep the ticket prices low. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's something that I want to take everybody. I want this to be our family tradition. And, you know, with uh, the economy, it's great to uh, have an affordable concert of this magnitude. Uh, Well, listen, from your lips to God's ears, brother, I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, From the jump, from day one, Paul O'Neill and his family have always been cognizant, keep the ticket prices down. You know, this was never about money with Paul. In the beginning, he said to me straight up, like you and I are talking right now, I just want to create great art. And if we accomplish that, then maybe if we get a little lucky, everything else will fall into place. Right. Now, we've been doing this, what's approaching 27, it's going on 28 years, <laughs> you know? So keeping the ticket prices affordable forever has been, you know, his mission and the O'Neill family's mission. This year in particular, dude, I don't know what happened, but everything's expensive. Yes, it surely is. Nicole and I took the girls out to a movie a couple weeks ago. You know, four tickets, popcorn, Skittles, raisinets, some Twizzlers, a couple pretzels and cheeseburgers. It was like 200 bucks. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like an expensive dinner, man. <laughs> yeah, man, that was even like not filling up the car with gas. It was just like, no, I, I don't know what's going on. Everything's expensive. Yeah. Tickets will not be expensive, you know, and and it's important because I'd rather celebrate. Let's have our tradition. Let's get that familiar Paul O'Neill Christmas thing going back on again. You know, let's have some fun and not, you know, go, I can't afford it. You'll spend more money at Burger King drive through than a ticket for us. That's right. Almost 30 years. Uh, obviously, your Christmas is, is different from, you know, 99% of the people in, in the country here. Is uh, is this just the new norm for you? I mean, have you adapted to it? I mean, I, I still because it just amazes me how much you do 
literally in like, you know, 45 days. Um, and obviously that is around the holidays. So is everyone on the crew just pretty much accepted it and said, hey, this is this is the way we do Christmas. I don't even think it was a conversation for most people. The first time I did a tour throughout the holidays was 1989 when I was playing with Alice Cooper. Um, you know, we were in Europe and like I, I think we played Christmas Eve in Frankfurt, Germany. And then, I don't know, I think we flew to Canada and did the whole winter tour. So it, when you dream about something, you want something so bad, everything takes a backseat to what you want to pursue and what right. you dream. So ever since I was a little kid, I've dreamt of one thing and one thing only, this. Right. So then in 95, 96, when we first started recording, it was like, okay, we're putting some records out and a lot of people buying them. And I, I kind of felt like, you know, it was like the steely day of Christmas, you know. Yeah. No words, just make great music, put good records out. Right. And then... In 99, we did our first run of shows, and we had a 24-foot box truck and a fog machine. We thought we were awesome, you know? Uh, you know, playing like the Tower in Philly, the Beacon, uh, the Orpheum in Boston, right? Fox down in Atlanta. And it kind of grew in a, it, we, this is what it is. So for 20, this will be 23 years of touring, you know, taking 2020 out of the, the equation for a minute, mm -hmm. I, I don't want anything different. So it's not my new norm, this is just my norm. This is what it is, you yeah. know? My children grew up through it, uh, you know, they come visit, you know, when they can. But, you know, from a week before Halloween until New Year's Day, I got to go. Dad's yeah. working. Yeah, and loving every second of it. <laughs> well, the 2022 tour is branded the ghost of Christmas Eve, the best of TSO and more. Uh, so let's talk about the and more, if you can tell us a little bit. I mean, is there something that uh, you kind of got hidden up your sleeve that uh, every year you seem like you always, I'm like, I've seen this so many times, I kind of know it, but all of a sudden there'll be something new and exciting, man. You just keep reinventing it. Yeah, I always got something up my sleeve. And again, starting from the top, you know, you got the O'Neill family, our managers, our production heads, um, you know, the band. Everybody loves their tradition. Everybody loves that familiar, safe place to go. Right. Know? But it's fun to kind of push people back on the heels a little bit as well. Exactly. So we, absolutely. There'll be some, you know, a brand new introduction to the show, brand new opening musically. Uh, then the familiar part kicks in. The Ghost of Christmas Eve has been adopted by people globally yeah. as part of their holiday tradition. Just love it. I mean, Paul's story is incredible. The characters, the narration, the poetry, the whole thing is just wonderful. And then Mischief kicks in in the second half. <laughs> and we pulled out some songs we've never played before that we're going to hit this year. And it's going to be really special and a lot of fun to do that. Now, I'll be straight with you. As far as the production goes, again, I won't know until I get to production rehearsals. I, uh, it's not that they like to keep us in the dark, but they kind of like to keep us in the dark. Yeah. You know? Every, look, when I walk into that arena in uh, Council Bluffs at the Mid-America Center is where we rehearsed. We've been there for about 15 or 16 years. You know, I immediately turn into a 14-year-old all over again. <laughs> I, you know, it's like when I used to try to sneak into the garden. You know, and, and get chased by the cops. <laughs> right. You know, now, I'm, I'm kind of, now, at least I'm not getting chased by the police or a SWAT team any longer. I'm, I'm like, okay, I can walk into the arena, and it turns me into a teenager all over again because I see, you know, twenty-something tractor trailers, buses, road cases, the crew. It's like the most awesome moment ever, you know, and I look for every second of it. So uh, I, I guess that, you know, you kind of leads me into my next question about the planning on it, because obviously, you know, you said there's some things that you don't know about till you really step into the uh, the venue to rehearse. But kind of give me a timeline of everyone, you know, once it's over, everyone gets back to the new year. And then all of a sudden you're starting to look to the holiday season many months down the road. But when is the actual timeline of things really start kicking into gear to get prepped for uh, the tour that same year? 
about 12 or 13 months before the downbeat of the next show. So I mean, seriously, <laughs> I swear to God, brother. By the time we start in October in rehearsals, the, the logistics and the planning and the routing is being looked at for the 2023 tour. You know, it has become like such a big thing that there is no days off. There's no time off. Wow. You know, I mean, you know, you know finding the availabilities on venues. You know, we got to compete with those pesky basketball teams. Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I bet so, they hate when you guys come around. It's like, oh, God, oh, we got to go on the road, man. Here comes TSO. <laughs> degenerates again. You know? But it's become a machine. And again, it didn't start this way. Yeah. It started really small. You know, like any other great corporation, you know, and it just grew and grew and grew. So the O'Neill family, our managers, production heads, all the powers that be are constantly like looking at next year. What are we going to do? What are we planning for? For You know, uh, the, last year was the 25th anniversary. What, what's next? Right, right. Musically, we're always looking at, okay, what haven't we done in a while? What can we put? How can we put a musical twist on something? What can we do that we haven't done in 10, 15 years? Uh, because this is, you know, this is our lives. This is our passion. And not only that, it's our tradition as well. You know, like you very lovely. It was lovely the way that you said it's a lot of people in your community's tradition. Well, starting with my family, too, you know. Indeed. So I want to make it more special every year, you know. And the fact that we've become part of um, America and globally to a certain extent, but certainly the communities that we've been playing for so many years, we've become part of their holiday tradition. That's a big responsibility. And what would break my heart is if anybody ever walked out of the building saying, eh, I liked it better last year. Don't think gonna that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm going to, you know, we're all going to work real hard to, to ensure that that never takes place. Let me give the listeners some stats. We're talking 100 plus concerts, 60 cities, uh, just over 45 days. And I don't know what your age is, Alan. You don't have to tell me. I just turned 61 in August. But I got to think at my age, it, it would be like an athlete getting ready, you know, to go into the Super Bowl. I mean, what, what do you do to prepare yourself not only – uh, physically, but also mentally for this, man, because that, that just sounds... I know you love it. It's fun. You, you're you yeah. a musician, but still at the end of the day, dude, it's that's work. You know, it's like what Muhammad Ali said years and years ago, you know, train hard, fight easy. Right, right. So I don't think we're ever unprepared, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You know, I, I, you know, I'm a big fight fan and I love boxing and I love the UFC. So I remember, uh, you know, like somebody canceled the fight not so long ago and they called Donald Cerrone and they're like, you in shape? He's like, I'm always in shape. And like the next day he went and clobbered somebody, you know, <laughs> it's not too different because this has been my life for all of it. You know, so I'm always mentally prepared. I'm always practicing, you know, I mean, for a thousand reasons, I'm always trying to stay in good shape. I mean, I have two young daughters, so chasing them around all day will keep you young anyway. Absolutely. And everybody in the band and management, you know, everybody's in the same mindset. We're never away from this thing long enough to get out of shape, you know. And if you compare it to like, um, I like the comparison of a Super Bowl team, you know. Guys fight and claw on their way all year long for, you know, that trophy. And they nail it. They crush it. And they, they celebrate their victory, which is the most, the biggest victory in the NFL, right? Right. And then you go, okay, now we got to do it again next year. <laughs> we got to keep doing it, man. We'll guarantee that you're going to do it next year. Last year is in my rearview mirror. It was a great year. With all the anxiety and stress that COVID was, you know, wreaking upon all of us. Yes. It was still a great year. This year, start from scratch, rebuild it. You know, I don't have time, nor does anybody else, to get out of shape, mentally or physically. 
Well, uh, this is the first time I've ever had you on my uh, syndicated show, the L.A. Lloyd Rock 30, and obviously uh, a staple of, you know, artists who's had several number one songs on here is is Hailstorm and Lizzie Hale, which she performed, oh. Forget About the Blame, on Letters from the Labyrinth. Uh, and I wanted to play that one today, but maybe uh, you tell me a little bit about how she became a part of that album, because uh, in my opinion, she's one of the best vocalists out there and obviously and fits right in with uh, what you guys do. Well, I remember, uh, I, I'm not sure of the year. I'm going to say around 2010. And I stumbled upon um, one of the singles that they had out, um, I Get Off On You. Yeah, yeah, it's one of her first ones, yeah. And I heard this girl sing, and I was like, damn. <laughs> right. Know? It was about as legit as legit could be. I mean, it just, I was listening to it, you know, I was jogging around whatever venue, wherever I was, and I had my uh, headphones on, and it was screaming. It was just so good. I was like, I don't know who this is, but this is awesome. So I instantly became a fan. Now, that had nothing to do with getting her involved in the record, but I was well aware of her, and I think her brother's in the band as well. He's the drummer, yep, RJ. I love that band. I love the integrity, the sincerity. Everything about them is just vicious and cool. You know? yeah. And I remember we were putting the rhythm track together, forget about the blame, and I think Paul came into the studio, um, maybe the managers were with him. I'm not really sure, but they said, what do you think about Lizzie Hale singing? This is like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't ask how that occurred. I just knew that somebody was talking to somebody who admired some whatever. And I, I, the only drag about it is I never got to meet her or be in the studio with her. Yeah. I think Virginia took the tapes up to her. Tapes, really? Sorry. Old guy. Yeah. <laughs> they took the hard drives. And, and anyway, I, I, it came back and I heard it. It's just like, yeah, that's my girl. Yeah. So if you speak to her, because I'm sure you'll talk to her long before I do, just wish her my best and respect because she killed it. She's awesome. I will definitely be speaking to her soon. And I've never a actually asked her about that song. So I wanted to get your take on it before I spoke with her. Uh, you know, when you think about TSO at the beginning of it all, Christmas Eve Sarajevo was, uh, you know, from what I've read, inspired by a true story of a cellist who refused to be intimidated by gunfire in his native city there. You know, and, and I have to tell you, Al, with the unrest in the world, this song is just as relevant today as it was when it was first written. And and I, I got a feeling that when you perform that or the entire band, it, it's just this timeless classic that just uh, is, is part of your DNA now, right? Yeah, it, it is, brother. And it was a timeless classic as we were recording it. You know, there's just certain things that happen in your life that when you're in that moment, you realize that this moment is really, really, really important. No idea to what extent, but I remember Paul calling me up in, uh, let's say, late winter, early spring, 95, and saying, you know, I've got this project I'm working on. Uh, I could really use you to come in. Let me just see what you come up with. I said, all right, of course. You know, I was a huge Paul O'Neill fan. I'd known him from, like, the middle 80s, you know, right. from the New York days, you know. And uh, I went to the studio, and he put the faders up, and I heard, you know, what was becoming – Christmas Eve, Sarajevo, 1224. And I kind of looked at him like, <laughs> you know, like when your dog looks at your cock eyes. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, wow. I was like, what's up, with the, what's up with the Christmas song? And, you know, those big blue eyes of his and that smile, you know. And uh, he said, well, it's not necessarily a Christmas song, but it's more a song depicting events that took place on Christmas Eve. Right. Okay, you got my attention. Now, mind you, my dad was a poli-sci professor. Okay. And a world history uh, teacher. So I've been listening to this my whole life, and I never paid attention to the old man, right? You know, you know. And Paul, as soon as he said that, I was like, okay, go. And he told me that, like you just said, you know, during the war in Bosnia, this classical cellist would bring his cello to the town square, 
and in protest of the bombing raids, play you know pieces by the great masters. Amazing. And I told him, and, and the hair on my arm stood up. And he goes, "What?" And I said, "Dude, I was Alice Cooper's MD in the late '80s, and um, we played in what was Zagreb and Belgrade, and I, that town square that you're talking about. I sat in that. Wow. You know, I can tell you what I can smell like. I had met a lot of friends, you know, from working over there that unfortunately were all killed during the war. And I said, "Dude, do me a favor, just press record." And I started playing the opening notes, and he looked at me and goes, "Yes." Wow. The finishing touch to that underscore to the soundtrack. Great guitar players have come in and out of that camp over the years. You know, starting with Chris Oliver, Rest of Soul. You know, and you know Alex Skolnick and Chris Caffrey. I mean, just incredible musicians. But there was something about when Paul told me that story that resonated with me because I was there. You know, and it goes back to um, a quote I had heard from Carol King not too long ago about where you know, as a songwriter, you know, she makes a point of being aware that she needs something familiar in that song to make the listener feel like easy and at rest. Growing up in, in, you know, the heyday of Hollywood and Broadway shows and scores and stuff like that, you know, growing up listening to West Side Story and the Sound of Music, uh, South Pacific, you know, the score or the subtleties and the nuances underneath is what can transcend you from a listener to actually being where it was. And that's what Paul always wanted. That's what he was so brilliant at doing is not telling you the story, but including you in the story, you know, and you were involved in it. I wish I had a better quality camera so you could see the goosebumps on my arm right now, man. That's, that's, that's a I great got, story. Echo and Jekyll, that look on their face was perfect. So it was great. <laughs> but, you know, and that was the beginning of one of the most incredible relationships in my life. Was, yeah. You know, for Paul, because when we grew up, he's a couple years older than me, we grew up in the New York City area. So when he would talk about, you know, Zeppelin in 74 or 75 in the garden, or when the Who came through or Pink Floyd came through and built the wall or Genesis or you know, whatever, I got it. Yeah. Or we talk about shows at Radio City or Carnegie Hall or Avery Fisher Hall. I got it. Or going down to the theater district in Broadway. Yeah. Or, or the clubs down in the village. You know, so you take all those outside influences and you go like this and you smush it together. Yeah. Well, there it is. Musically, lyrically, you know. As a composer, as a novel writer, you know, uh, I was just proud and thrilled to be part of, you know, the underscoring, you know, to his genius. Yeah. He tells a story, everybody gets it. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to do. It is. Well, if you've uh, if you've ever experienced a, a TSO show before it all happens, uh, there's literally a, a big check that gets handed out to local charities. Uh, you've done it. Over $18 million have been distributed throughout the years. I know it's kind of hard to pick one a charity or something you've seen where this money has really helped out. But if, if is there one or two that maybe just kind of stands out that you've experienced that you went like, wow, this is this is something that's really special to me? All of them are because all of them are important. And it, it, it's always been paramount to Paul and his family to make sure that, you know, yeah, we're donating or the community is giving back to itself. However you want to look at the dollar going back in. Uh, but it was important for them to make sure that the money went to where it was supposed to go. Right. A couple times in my life, I had the privilege of going to some of these places. And one was up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I should know it. Or I was just talking about it the other day. But it was a children's school for homeless children. You know, that these kids, and, and I went and I sat in on a couple of the classes. And, like, these kids are homeless. You know, wow. their parents are homeless. The parents are working, do whatever they got to do. But for whatever reason, they, they're just, they're displaced out to the streets. Yeah. These children have a place to go to learn and get fed and be nurtured and taller. And, and the staff was like some of the most incredible people ever. Down in Texas, Jack Orban and Stone City Attractions has gotten us involved, putting musical instruments into the hand of underprivileged children. Right. Things like that, you know, because at the end of the day, 
what's going on in our world and, and a lot of the horrors and all that. Yeah, it's terrible across the board. When it comes to kids, dude, they didn't ask to be brought into this world. They're here. That's right. Anything we can do, you know, to help them out and just make their life or their day a little bit better and give them a shot at something. That's a great story. Um, as a radio and a voiceover guy, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the narrator. And I've never asked you about him. Uh, I don't know much about him except that he as they say, he has a voice like butter. Um, how long has he been with you? What's his background? And he is such an integral part of this performance, just as much as, as the musicians and, and the light crew or whoever. This guy, he just kind of puts it all together. Tell me about him. Well, on our coast, or in what's called the West Band, I don't know why it's called the West Band, but in that band. Yes, yes. You know, Philip has been with me probably about a dozen years. Okay. Uh, East Bryan is another one uh, who's been with them at least that long, maybe long, maybe 15, 16 years, you know? Right. The interesting about both of these gentlemen is they both have different ways of presenting Paul's poetry, you know, two completely polar opposite interpretations of it, but both equally as riveting. It's one thing to play guitar and, you know, put it through a marshal, put a little delay on it, some reverb and have it through, you know, the front of the house and just tearing your face off or, you know, singers or ensembles and orchestra, orchestras and, you know, a different kind of harmony, whatever or lasers and pyro and cool stuff like that. Right. It's really hard to stand there with a microphone and talk. <laughs> Bring 15,000 people to silence. And everyone is focused on it. I mean, he has their attention. I mean, it's beautiful. You know, it is the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. And I remember going back to what we chatted about earlier, you know, in 99, it was the first time we were ever going to go do any shows. And Paul said, well, I want the poetry read by a narrator. And I kind of went, what? <laughs> That's never been done before. He went, exactly. That's exactly right. That's why he was brilliant. How did he do that? He goes, I don't know, let's figure it out. So, you know, <laughs> at the time we had this guy, I remember uh, Tony Gaynor. Love Tony to death. You know, this is going back 23 years now. And Tony would start speaking, and a piano player at the time, Bob Kinkle, would start playing, kind of quoting the theme of the motif from the song that we were about to go into. And all of a sudden, just like, dude, this is awesome. So I chime in with the guitar, you know, maybe a couple cymbal swells and some wind chimes. Again, underscoring what the spoken word. That's right. And the mood was set. But yeah, when Phil does this thing or when Brian does this thing, <laughs> man, it's just like, they can bring, like we could just come out of the craziest over the top that song and the crowd's screaming and they'll walk up to their respective microphones and it's like, shh. I know. It's amazing. It, it truly is. Um, before we close out today, uh, obviously you performed to millions of viewers in a single television appearance, which, you know, is amazing. And I mean millions and millions of people. But at the end of the day, I, I probably will answer my own question here. I, I feel like there's something about playing to a camera and playing to those 18, 20,000 people every night at a venue. I mean, what, what's the difference in playing to these huge audiences that you know are watching you on the other side of that camera compared to just being right there when you look on the front row and you just see the eyes looking up at you? I mean, it's about as different as different could be. Yeah. Playing, recording the record is a really vulnerable, intimate, weird place because there's no immediacy reaction-wise. Right. It would be, you know, myself, Paul, Dave Whitman, our engineer, uh, you know, maybe BJ Ramon, you know, one of the other dudes in the studio, right? right. One, two, three, four people at tops in the studio, and you're playing and you're playing and trying to come up with the right part and the right sound and all that. It's, it's really, there's a circuitous journey that occurs to get from point A to point Z to hand you a finished record. Live, pow, reaction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, we're good. Or a bad reaction, either way, whichever way that goes, right? The tour was taken away from us due to COVID. In retrospect, I don't really have a whole lot to complain about 
I mean, there's people out there who suffered great loss and tragedy and heartbreak. You know, a lot of people died. All right. So I never want to sound like some like bougie little brat. Right. You know, my family was safe. Everybody was healthy. Thank God. Okay. But when it came time to work, what I've been doing most of my life is no longer there. Now, not to mention, I was afraid to go get a pizza and bananas for my kids. I was Clorox wiping every food item that came through the house. Yes. Like CNN or, or, or whatever news channel I was watching, you know, like, like petrified. Like it was some bad Charlton Heston movie from the 60s. You know? Right, right. So I was like, all right, we're not touring. Ah, God. Again, the O'Neills and, and our management team said, how about a live stream? Like, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> the internet you know and they said well listen what we'll do is we'll set up rehearse the band for a couple days have a bunch of cameras and we'll live basically play live a bunch of people's homes i'm like the world just stopped and you're asking me to do one show yes yes <laughs> Count me in. So, dude, i didn't care if kermit the frog was in the audience that day right instead of sixteen thousand people there was 16 high def cameras okay I have a lot of memories of a lot of years of a lot of shows that I was able to close my eyes and know that this band right now sounds awesome. And if they're, if I know there's a live audience, how be it that they're in their living rooms now, but I know that they got their fists in their air when they're jumping off, you know, the, the, the coffee table in their living room, you know, because I'm having a great time. So, no, it was different. But when that's all you have, it was the, the greatest show. Yeah. Every second, I'd prefer not to do it again. I think a lot of bands have said that it's like, you know, it was kind of a, a necessity. And I was pumping my fist while you did that, by the way. Uh, but, you know, there, there's nothing like it, man. It's just, uh, you know, when you got snowflakes falling in your hair and, uh, you know, it's it's just this communal tribal. It's just, man, we're together here and we're all on the same page. And, you know, it, it doesn't feel like band and audience. It, it literally does just feel like this community, man. And, that, and that's why I think it's different than any other live show you'll ever go see. Well, listen, I appreciate you saying that. You hit it on the head. The only thing I want to add to the live stream was, and again, going back to the recording, sometimes, you know, the immediate reaction is cool. Sometimes, you know, you're not going to get an immediate reaction. So when we recorded these records, sounds really good to me, you know. Me and Paul fist bump, and it's like, yeah, right on. You know, his family's happy. We're all good. And then when you sell, you know, twelve million records, well, there's the not so immediate reaction, right? Right. In the uh, the live stream, you know, it was like, ready, go. <laughs> 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 right, here it comes, kids. Yeah. And I didn't find out until about a week or two later that two hundred fifty thousand homes. Wow. Purchased it. I've never heard the stats on that. That's that is truly amazing. I mean, that just shows you people love you. I do yeah, and I appreciate that. And we love them right back. But what made me the happiest was is that under the most bizarre circumstances, like the world literally seemed like it was ending, people took two hours out to celebrate Paul O'Neill's work. Yeah, and if two hundred fifty thousand homes purchased it, and you got mom, dad, Billy, Sally, and Uncle Ernie drunk on the couch, well, you do the math. There it is. You know. <laughs> And I was so proud of that moment because, again, it wasn't an immediate reaction. You know, again, you and I are on the other side of 60 now. I'm okay with not immediate. I just want it to be a good reaction at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a month later that it was awesome. As long as it was awesome, we're good. It always is, my friend, and it's great to see. I cannot wait for another uh, tradition. And and actually, uh, my mom lives in North Carolina, so she's going. She's 85, and she's going with my sister for the first time uh, ever to see it this year. So uh, I, I told her, I said, I, I got to get you a Christmas present, something I've never given you before, and I, I got them all tickets for the show there. So, uh, again— yeah. We love you. It's a big part of our family and everyone watching this, listening to this on the radio, and always amazing to see you. And, and you're one of the friendliest guys I've ever met, man. Back at you, my brother. 
Tell mom have a great time. I will. She'll definitely be enjoyed. She'll be raving about it. I promise you. <laughs> I, hope, I hope so. Listen, it was a pleasure talking to you. Much love and respect. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. You got it, brother. Take care. I'll see you in Austin soon. Yeah, brother. Next time. Stay safe.